Blog Talk Radio. The following program is brought to you by Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. Hi, my name's John Carousella, and I'm your host for Convergence on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. Convergence is to consciousness as gravity is to the material world. In small amounts, gravity is overwhelmed by every other fundamental force of the universe. But gravity has something nothing else has. It's cumulative. The more matter you collect, the more gravity you get, until it becomes the most powerful force of the material world. I think convergence is like that too. Only in this case, we're working with truth. The more truth we collect, the more convergence we experience. Connections, relationships, resonance of ideas and concepts, science and mysticism. Lately, deep truths just seem to be coming together, even as many of the illusions around us are falling apart. As within, so without. As above, so below. I know I'm feeling it, and I'll bet you are too. For the next 90 minutes, we'll be exploring concepts and topics that in some way or another bring us around to a deeper truth. Join me and my guests for this week's experience of Convergence. Welcome to Convergence. I'm your host, John Carousella. This month, I'm sharing a reprise of my conversation with Richard Bach, who for years has hosted a meditation known as Quantum Light Breath at Harbin Hot Springs in Lake County, California. For the last 40 years, Harbin Hot Springs has been a place of respite and reprieve for many across the country and around the world. But it holds a special place in the hearts of Northern Californians because it's so close, so accessible, and so affordable. Sadly, all the facilities at Harbin Hot Springs burned to the ground recently in the Great Valley Fire that has been ravaging Lake County and its surroundings. Many of the staff at Harbin also lived on the grounds. They've lost their homes as well as their livelihood. Harbin is in urgent need of donations. So if you feel moved, visit harbin.org to learn how you can help. That's H-A-R-B-I-N dot O-R-G. H-A-R-B-I-N dot O-R-G. Thanks for your care and your consideration. Welcome back. This is Convergence, and I'm your host, John Carousella. And with me for this morning's roundtable are my co-hosts, Heisey Lutmers. Hello. And Mildred Lynn McDonald. Good morning. And it's great to be back, guys. Thank you so much for uh, bearing with me during my summer hiatus. Uh, And, you know, I have lots to share. And for today's show, I want to walk into the topic of meditation. I've been doing quite a bit of meditation during the last several months. And uh, later on in the show, we're going to talk with um, Richard Bach, who does a a very special kind of guided meditation up at Harbin Hot Springs in Lake County, California. Uh, So so today's topic, I think, is meditation. I want to explore it a little bit with you. And, you know, to start us off, do you guys meditate? And if so, what is your favorite style of meditation? Do you... And do you do it regularly? Like, I want to explore how meditation, what, what role meditation plays in your life. Well, John, 
when you brought this topic up, the first thing I did was Google what is meditation. And what I came up with, it's the act or process of spending time in quiet thought. So that kind of opens it up, doesn't it? No, yeah. In terms of, <laughs> that's like nutrition. It's a right. big topic area. Right. So the, your, the answer to your question is, yes, I do meditate based on that definition. Mm-hmm. And how it, it shakes out for me is that at dawn, when I first wake up, and before I go to bed, I steady myself, go inside, and do what I call a vis- visualization. And what that simply means is I consciously shift my vibration and open up the space to receive inspiration or intuitive messages. And interestingly enough, so I do that twice a day, interestingly enough, I have increased that to three times a day. Oh. Yeah, yeah. And the reason I've done that is I find there's a lot going on in my life on many levels right now. And the act of meditating in the format that I just shared really centers me. And it's almost like I'm in training to access the shift in vibration. So I'm like, I'm training like an athlete. So no matter what happens, I know that I am able to access this place of centeredness and presence and holding the space for myself. So that's, so it's, and then I thought about your question, you know, what are the benefits of it? And I was thinking to myself, you know, I don't know if I could get through the day without meditating anymore. What it's would, so much a part of me. What would, what would happen if you didn't meditate? Like, where, how, would your, how would your beingness be affected? I feel that I would yearn for it. Just as a person who does energy work in terms of massage, I don't know if you've ever heard talk to a person who does massage and they really love it. And they say, well, you know, if I go two days without touching a person, my hands start to yearn to touch a person. Mm-hmm. That's how I feel about the meditation. Ah, okay. Yeah. So, so there's, uh, having established the practice. You now have a yearning for it, like it's part of a, like it's part of a, a your diet. You know, like you're hungry. Part of the air. Mm-hmm. Yes, I need to breathe. <laughs> right, and and when you are do, going about your day, and you so you have these three sort of quasi scheduled moments of meditation. Uh, do you ever find that you just need to stop and meditate because of circumstances? Yeah, that's that's happens a lot like it depends it's directly proportional to how busy I am and when I say busy it could be stressful busy or being called upon to to be a calming force or or whatever you know life is throwing my way at the minute but what makes the difference is I know I always have access to that meditative state to calm and center myself and the, and it's the meditative state that is a is the state itself a resource, or is it what comes through the state? It's the, for me. It's the state itself is a, is is where it's at for me, and it's directly related to a decision I made, probably about two months ago. It occurred to me to live each day like a prayer. Hmm. So when I go out in the world. I'm approaching my interaction or interface with the world as I'm praying 100% of the time. Right. And so the meditation really fits in with that. And the benefits, 
it takes me out of this time and space and puts me into a more expansive area where my perception and understanding is more expansive. So you're kind of outside of all the action, and that's where I find the real benefit. Hmm. Interesting. How about you, I see? Do you, do you have a meditative practice? Um, yes. Now, I'll say that my my favorite or my preferred form of meditation is actually focused or guided meditation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I actually try to do those the first thing in the morning. I keep my, usually my iPad, sometimes it's my phone. Um, but I always make sure that I take that to bed with me so that when I wake up in the morning, the first thing I do is I just reach over and I start a meditation so that I'm just kind of after that waking state but haven't engaged in things in the world yet um, to to try to, to have to quiet those down, like I haven't already read email or something like that. Right, right. right. Um, you know, and and I like the guided meditations just because they they just walk me through a process and take me to a place and allow me to stay focused on really getting something out of it. Um, which maybe that's my Capricorn nature because that that aspect of you know I, I want I want it to be about something I want that tangible sense. Mm. Um, and th- I mean, there's times when you know you can just I'll just sit and do meditation like we would think of in the more traditional way. Um, but I think that that's important for people to realize is that meditation isn't done in just one way, and there's many ways to do it. If we go back to what Mildred said, when it's just about quieting the mind, you know, there are things like walking meditation, um, you know, doing the dishes can be a meditation, taking a a hike in in the woods can be a meditation. The the key, you know, I mean, if you break meditation down to its very, very, very basic root, meditation is about the breath and Mm -hmm. being present with the breath. And as long as you are doing any of those things with intention and being very present in it and not using it as a time to think about something else, but to simply say, I'm just going to be with whatever comes up or whatever arises as I'm doing this. So as I'm washing the dishes, I'm not thinking about what groceries do I need to get to tomorrow. I'm just focusing on making a circle with the sponge on a plate. Or if I'm in the a hike on the woods, I'm not thinking about my agenda for the coming week. I'm just going to walk and see what the trees have to say to me or what comes in the air. And that idea of, of doing it not necessarily at scheduled times, but when there is a circumstance where we feel we need it, is I think a very important um, skill to develop for people. And it is a skill and it does get developed just like Milder kind of alluded to, I think of it like a muscle. The more we work it, the more it retains its muscle memory. So the easier it is for us to be able to um, engage it or to start it. Mm-hmm. And one thing, one thing I do is I have programmed what's called a, a trigger, and that's just something. So for me, it's 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 not a mudra per se, but you could think of mudras as doing that. But like for me, it's putting my thumb and forefinger together, tip to tip. Mm-hmm. And I I always do that when I meditate, and I've actively programmed that in my mind to know this is what I do when I'm going into meditation. So that now what can happen is if there's a moment in the day when I suddenly need to just recenter and come back to that state, 
I can just find a place and take a moment and I put my fingers together like that and it, it triggers the brain to automatically start to go into meditation mode. Right, right. I don't take time to start thinking about, okay, let me think about my breath, let me start to get into this stage, you know, or whatever. It's like that actually physically triggers the brain to start the process and it's much more expedient, I guess you could say, to get there. Yeah, it's good to have a, a, a natural trigger like that, uh, for sure. And, and that can be also doing meditation in the same place or at the same time every day. You know, if somebody's going to sit on a cushion and do what you think of as very traditional meditation, um, showing up and doing that in the same place and at the same time, as soon as, if it's in, like, say, a particular corner of a room, as soon as you walk into that corner, your brain and your body already starts to go into that shift into meditation mode because they're used to that's what this space is about. I also think that energetically we start to fill and create that space too. So we step into it kind of like stepping into an energetic bubble. Yeah. And so our, our mind and our body start to do it. So that's really the importance of the consistency of it. And, and not so much consistency of you have to do it 30 minutes a day or an hour a day if that's really difficult for people. It's more about... If you're going to start, maybe pick the place, but go and sit there every day for at least a couple of minutes. Yeah, I think that's wise, yeah. Yeah, and that'll start that process, and then you'll find that because you don't have to take a minute or two just to get to the meditative state, because your body and mind start to automatically go there when you step into that space or sit on that cushion, then you'll find that those couple of minutes of meditation become uh, richer and deeper and more rewarding, and you'll be able to perhaps sit there and meditate for a few minutes longer. And it's not a struggle or it's not something you're really having to try to do. Yeah. Um, you know, so, so that's, to me, the importance of the consistency. And that focus on the breath, you know, it, it can just be for a moment. But if we can remember to just, it was interesting where Mildred said uh, about being outside. Because for me, it, it's, it, it really says it takes us right back to that internal center and even just stepping away, closing our eyes, and, and focusing on the breath literally coming in and out of our nose for a few seconds, even counting it, can quickly and, and immediately change our attitude. It can immediately diffuse a sense of over-emotional reaction to something so we're able to engage in a conversation better. And it's not a long, drawn-out process. It can be very quick, but that's because we've kind of trained our body and our mind to be able to do that because they understand what that is when we're going into that space. Yeah, I, I, that's that's the uh, meditation as practice, right? It, it is a practice, at, at least for me. The the consistency of the commitment to engage, as you said, Heisey, it isn't, doesn't necessarily have to be for a particular length of time, but the the choice to do it, even if it's for five minutes, and to do it regularly every day, uh, I think makes a big difference because it does condition the body and the mind and the psyche to be a willing and and b to start to start yearning for it, right? And that always makes it easier. You know, it's like any kind of a good habit. Once you start doing it, you kind of want to keep doing it. Uh, and you know, I for me, my style of meditation is really a breathing a breathing meditation where I check in with the various parts of my body that are experiencing any kind of discomfort. And I breathe into them. I focus on 
what those feelings are and use my breath to sort of um, relax and expand the parts of my body that feel somehow constricted or congested. And I can do that, uh, and I often do that for physical discomfort, right? Like if I'm if I have a sore, just a sore spot, like a sore joint or something like that, I can use meditation to help clear that. But it also works for, um, you know, emotional things. Like if I'm feeling sad or depressed or uh, anxious or whatever, uh, breathing into those, you know, recognizing, acknowledging those feelings, bringing them up, and breathing into them helps me understand why they're there and helps me make adjustments in my life so that they don't have to stay. And I think I think it's also important to mention here that meditation, you don't want to just do that when it's things like sadness, depression, etc. I would also encourage people to do it when they're feeling great joy or great happiness or great elation or something is really positive that's going on. So they can also breathe into that and really experience what it's like to be completely filled with that emotion or that experience and to, to, to experience it that way, but then to be able to cultivate that more. Because if they then do it when they're feeling something like sadness or depression, they also have an experience with something of how do I transmute this? How do I shift this? And I know what to breathe into in order to shift it as I'm perhaps breathing out the sadness and depression, but I also know what to breathe in because I've had that experience and I have sat with what happiness or joy or whatever it is feels like as well. Yeah, well, yeah, for example, like a gratitude meditation is fantastic, right? Figure out, find out, identify two or three things that um, you're grateful for and breathe into those and let that sort of fill you up. I, I like that too. It's a good point. Uh, I, I wanted to come back to something, Mildred, then that you said, um, and I see you, you referenced it too, that the, um, Mildred Lynn, you talked about the sort of, you go inside and then you sort of expand outside and above the hubbub, right, the, of whatever's mm-hmm. going on. And for me, there's a there's a kind of a, it's an expansion of my awareness and of my, of my feelingness, you know, uh, and I distinguish between the two. You know, the awareness is sort of like this, this perceptual. Uh, what am I? What am I receiving from, from the outside world? And the feelingness is wh- how is that affecting me on the inside? Uh, and it, it, it's like my whole self expands, not to separate from what's going on, but to embrace what's going on in addition to I guess you know one might call it a, a higher self that my higher self's understanding and experience of what's going on so I don't I don't leave or dissociate from what's happening I sort of expand around it and it becomes only a part of what I'm experiencing and there's and there's more uh, more to me and more to the universe that I'm experiencing when I get into this meditative place. So it, it sort of helps me p- put whatever's happening in perspective, which is uh, helpful for me often as well. So um, just a little follow-up. What are, what are situations that compel you or invite you to meditate? Like what, what kind of stressors, are, or is it stressors that compel you to meditate? Well, I find for myself 
John, you know, when you're busy and you're active and you have a lot of things on the go, just the pace of flowing through your life, if you deviate from your natural rhythm or heartbeat, can create a stress on mm-hmm. your system, mm-hmm. you know, mind, body, spirit, emotion, and dream. And I find the trick, at least for me, is to be aware when I'm when I'm moving out of my zone of centeredness. And what is the tool that I can use immediately to get myself back? And that would be meditation. Okay. So, form of meditation. So for you, it's if you're moving away from centeredness, that's when you that's a that's a, an indication that that would com, would invite you to meditate. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. That's my survival tactic. Yes. How about you, Heisey? Well, mine isn't so much. I don't necessarily focus on doing it when there are stressors, mm. versus having cultivated it so that when one stressors are less likely to create stress if I've been cultivating a meditative state anyway, and that's why I like to do it in the morning mm. because it it sets an energy and it sets a tone and it sets an attitude for me to breathe into the day and then go through the day um, from a different place. Now, you know, occasionally you may have a really difficult day or something like that, and so maybe I would do it in the evening as well as a way of kind of breathing out and de-stressing and releasing some things. Um, But I find that doing it regularly and setting the tone of the day with it means that I'm not impacted or affected by things in the same way throughout the day. Right. So I'm not necessarily, I mean, it does remind me to always come back to my breath throughout the day. Right, yes, me too. But but I find that I'm better able to simply be with and sit with and be present with things in the day um, because I've already established that kind of mindset and that energetic aspect from the beginning of the day. Right, right. Well, I, so I think with that, I'll, I'll, I'll wrap with uh, uh, a quote that I find very appropriate, which is that, you know, you should meditate for at least 15 minutes a day unless you're too busy, in which case you should meditate for at least an hour a day. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> and I, I find that to be true. So uh, in any case... Um, Stay tuned for the rest of the show. It's going to be a good one. And I want to thank my guests, uh, my co-hosts, Hi C and Mildred Lynn. And we'll be right back. Thanks. Have a great show, John. Have a great show. At Firefly Willows L-I-V-E, we're working hard to be your trusted source for fun, enlightening, and heart-centered information and community. And we're passionate about the art of transformative media, the new leading edge of communication in our highly connected, media-rich world. If you're passionate about facilitating change and you have gifts or ideas you'd like to share, come join us, host a show, or be a guest, or connect us to an amazing speaker or teacher whose message is too good to miss. There's always room for courageous, knowledgeable changemakers, inspired artists, and new ideas. Let us know you're interested. Send an email to info at fireflywillows.com. We're Firefly Willows, L-I-V-E helping you find and shine your inner light. Welcome back. This is Convergence, and I'm your host, John Carousella. Meditation is a strange domain. There are so many ways to approach it, and so many different ways to experience it, it's almost difficult to define. I think I had my first experience of meditation in high school, 
I was very busy, very active, very accomplished in high school. And at the end of the school day, I would take the bus home and plop myself down in the living room and just sort of stare out the window. All the social and academic swirl of my life would simmer down and stop, and I'd space out for a while. I never really knew how long, because I, I didn't time it. I didn't even name it or view it as a practice. I just I just did it. And when I came to, as it were, I would feel tremendously refreshed. Not invigorated exactly, but soothed and comfortable and, and capable. I'd feel just right and could go about my chores or my homework or my extracurricular activities with an even energy and a positive attitude. I lost that connection when I went to college. I was much less productive in college, actually, and partook of the usual college activities of inebriation and soporification and other such indulgences, none of which contributed to my sense of well-being nor my productivity. And it's taken me a long time to find my way back to meditation. I tried a number of different styles, read the books and tried the practices. Back when Firefly Willows was a healing arts center, we had a regular Zen meditation with Robert Jackson of A Quiet Mind. I remember being puzzled by the admonition that it was a purposeless practice, nothing to be achieved. Further questions simply yielded increasingly impenetrable responses. Mm. Well, Zen is not known for its verbal transparency anyway. But we did talk about quieting the mind, the monkey mind, the repetitive cycling of stories and sound bites and themes of self-criticism of various kinds. I remember one particular evening sitting with Robert and company, and I realized that to quiet my mind, I would have to stop the process of internally verbalizing. Stop the words in my head. How to do that? Well, I started simply by shushing myself. Every time a word would appear in my mind, I would say to myself, shh. But it turns out that wasn't enough because I could hear sounds around me. People breathing, cars going by, a horn or alarm, laughter. I realized that the very process of recognizing these things, naming these things in my mind, was creating a kind of internal verbalization. And that was in the way. Why? I think because naming things is a process of conceptualization, which is a left-brain thing. And that the process of conceptualization takes you from the experience of something into the thinking about something. I like to say it takes you from the terrain into the map. And it also takes you out of unity and into duality. Now, this is not an easy thing to undo or counteract. It's actually quite natural for us humans to parse the world into recognizable pieces. It's how we operate successfully, navigate successfully, and communicate successfully. I think, and it's been theorized by others, that our thinking brain, our left analytical brain, relies heavily on language to parse the world. Or, at least, that the parsing of the world and the ability to communicate about it are tightly coupled and use similar parts of the brain. Temple Grandin, autistic thinker and author of 
Animals in Translation, and other books about how animals think and perceive the world, says that animals are hyper-specific in their interpretation of their surroundings. A man with no hat on foot in a barn is initially nothing like that same man on a horse in the pasture wearing a hat. I think that's because the animal is not conceptualizing man, hat, and pasture as separate things, but rather experiencing the whole of its perception. Grandin hints at this kind of perception when she talks about animals thinking in pictures, as she does herself to some extent in her somewhat unique way of conceiving the world. Jill Bolt-Taylor, a neuroscientist, shares a related experience. In her book and TED Talk, My Stroke of Insight, she talks about her experience of a massive stroke that occurred in her left brain. It compromised her language and conceptualization skills and launched her into a powerful state of cosmic unity, oneness, or satori as they call it in Zen discipline, leading to nirvana, that imperturbable stillness of mind after the fires of desire, aversion, and delusion have been finally extinguished. Bolt-Taylor attributes her experience of this state to the shutting down of her left brain and the shifting of her conscious awareness wholly, or nearly so, into her right brain. So back to the Zen session with Robert Jackson. I methodically and carefully continued to shush myself to the point where all those extraneous noises were just experiences of sound, not categorized. With my eyes closed and no words in my head and no concepts attached to my sensory experience, something weird happened. Everything stopped and my body erupted in an effervescent bubbling sensation, where I was both expanding and collapsing at the same time. Like I was water careening down a waterfall, and foam expanding and evaporating without limit. Of course, I was so startled and excited that I lost my state of stillness, named the experience, and in half a breath, it vanished completely. So that's one experience of meditation. Long stretches of sitting with a powerful, miraculous peak experience as the harvest. A more recent experience of meditation for me is based on breathwork. This approach is often cited as the simplest and most pure form of meditation. It took me a long time to get the hang of breathing meditation, mostly because paying attention to the breath led me to pay left brain attention to the breath. Even the coaching included things like counting or saying a mantra while breathing. I found these approaches to be quite counterproductive, actually. They only reinforced my verbal brain, my conceptualizing brain, my egoic, I am in control brain. But I remember how the shift happened. I'd made a New Year's resolution to be as capable and refined in my capacity to feel as I was in my capacity to think. And then I went running one day and began to feel my breathing. And I've been making much faster progress ever since. Instead of paying attention to my breath, whatever that might mean, I now choose to feel it. To feel my lungs expand and contract. To feel my diaphragm move. To feel my ribs. And to feel all the myriad other sensations that are available when one attends to the breath in this way. I think this approach works better for me because it's more immediate, 
more body and more present. It's more right brain. Now, the benefits I receive from meditating in this way are are great. I've been able to discover much more subtle capacities and structures within myself than I ever knew existed. I've been able to deal with pain and discomfort in new and effective ways. I've been able to sense more transpersonally, to empathically connect with others, and become more psychically aware. And I've been able to address emotional and psychological blocks within myself, too. It's not as dramatic as that Satori moment, but it seems to be a more steady and sustainable experience, and it is leading me somewhere. I find that when I meditate in this way, I'm calmer, more balanced energetically, and healthier. I'm stronger emotionally and can offer better guidance to friends, clients, and colleagues. And I can address my own down days with much more grace. So, meditation seems to work for me. How about you? We'll be right back. You're listening to Convergence with host John Carousella on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. Find out more at fireflywillows.com. Enjoy the show. Welcome back. This is Convergence, and I'm your host, John Carousella. And today, for today's spirited conversation, I have with me a special guest, Richard Bach. And we're actually recording live from Harbin Hot Springs on location in Lake County, California. Richard lives and works here at Harbin Hot Springs. And here is where he teaches aquatic bodywork, presence of being, and he facilitates quantum light breath meditations. He's also available for individual sessions and spiritual counseling. And Richard, it is a real pleasure to have you on the show today. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I was introduced to your work uh, by a, via a CD, right? Mm-hmm. And I want to I want to talk in 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 depth about your work, but I, I'd like to share with our audience that this quantum light breath meditation that you lead, uh, for me, even through the CD, it was a powerful opening to to the depth and, and reach of the breath, of breath work. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I'm curious, how, you, how did you find your way to this work? I mean, you didn't just, you, you didn't, you're not the inventor of quantum no, light breath. It was, uh, this particular form of breath work was uh, started by Jeru Kabal, uh, who passed away in 2001. He was a wonderful teacher who uh, was deeply immersed in Vipassana, Mm-hmm. And when he came back to the West, he was from America, but he lived in India for a long time. In the early Pune days, he was one of the group facilitators in the early Osho movement. Oh, okay. And then um, he would hold uh, long Vipassana retreats, especially up in Kashmir. When the whole um, Pune scene moved to Oregon, he didn't come to America. He stayed oh, in India. I see. Uh-huh. And then when he came to the West, he discovered um, conscious connected breathing. And he combined that with um, the whole Vipassana approach, and he, he discovered right away that this is a very potent combination. Mm-hmm. And did he have a did he have a, a, a meditation like your your meditation is like ninety minutes or so? 
The the CD is 60 minutes, oh, 60 but minutes. when I do it live, it, it gets a little longer. Yeah, it's, it's been a pleasure to experience you here at Harvard. It's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, so did did he uh, did he had he also created a, a sort of short version? Um, there, is, there is some shorter versions. What he did is he used um, recorded music, so he was like a DJ basically while he was guiding. Mm-hmm. And in the beginning, um, when I dis- I discovered it in '92 through a tape. Mm-hmm. that was played uh, during um, a training that I attended here at Harbin Hot Spring. I wanted oh. to become a massage therapist and mm-hmm. an aquatic body worker. Mm-hmm. And the woman who taught, um, she, on the fifth or sixth day, it was an 11-day course, she, we had a day of rest, and she put on a quantum light breath. And for me, uh, when I heard the guidance, and I mean, I immediately went into such deep, expanded bliss. And... This sentence kept moving through my mind. This man is doing my work. This is my work. Ah, okay. It, it was as if I knew how to guide this already, even though I had never done it before. It was so familiar, deeply, deeply familiar to me. And so I decided, you know, this is um, this is why I came to Harbin, not to become a body worker, but to really learn this breath work. And I did become an aquatic body worker, but um, I'm a massage therapist, but um, really the, that whole first course was to introduce me to quantum light breath and it was very powerful for me, extremely powerful. I came from a 15-year meditation background. Oh, I was going to ask. Because so I, I had come to Harbin in 92 after being involved in the Hare Krishna movement for 15 years, mm-hmm. which means many hours of meditation every day, many hours of kirtan on top of the meditation and study of the um, Bhagavad Purana and Bhagavad Gita and different Vedic scriptures. And I left the Hare Krishna movement in search of a place where I could find out what's true to my heart. I needed to get away from the dogma. I needed to get away from the right. being taught what's right and wrong. And I needed to, needed to find out what what that is for me. I had an immense heart opening a few months before leaving the Krishna movement. Um, and it caused a big shift in my life. And um, so I knew I had to move away from from the that whole philosophical umbrella and really find what's true for me. And when I came to Harbin, I was like, wow, this is perfect. All I have to do here is, you know, be nice, not hit anybody and pay my rent and I can live here. (laughs) This is really great. And uh, I was really called to do healing work because um, that was feedback I always got from people. When I touched people, I would do reflexology. I had learned some reflexology when I lived in Asia. And so when I came here in 92, I just totally, you know, changed my life around, left family and, and uh, philosophical umbrella of the, of the teachings mm-hmm. and um, came here to find out what's true for me. So you've been at Harbin since 1992. Yeah. And has, has your work with Quantum Light Breath, like, how has it, um, how has it evolved? So in the beginning, uh, in the first month or two when I start, began studying with Jiru Kabal, whenever I wanted to do quantum light breath with a small group of friends and I wanted to play the tape, people would say, we want you to guide it. And so I started guiding it and playing music similar to how Jiru was doing it. And so at one point I, I came to him and I said, you know, I've been guiding quantum light breath because people ask me. And and so he said, well, um, and I asked him for permission. I said, you know, what do you think about this? And he said, well, just check in and see why do you really want to do that? And so stop doing it for a while and just, just really 
discover what your motivation is. And so I stopped doing it, and um, people kept asking, and so I came back to him, and I said, you know, keep people keep asking me, and that's why I want to do it. He says, okay, you know, so right, keep right. so he never did a training. He never trained anyone to guide quantum light path. Um, we never discussed much of it. He just trusted that, you know, I was doing it um, in the right spirit. Mm-hmm. And um, he passed away in 2000 or 2001, and shortly after he passed away, all my music was got stolen. And my music equipment, everything, in a hotel in Spain, you know, within the first half hour of being in a hotel, somebody took my bag. Oh, wow. And I took it as a sign that I needed to go live, that I needed to do live music, because somehow my heart was yearning for that anyway. In the Krishna movement, I never listened to recorded music. We just mm, did right, live music all right, day long. Right, we'd be right. on a kirtan, right. starting at 4.30 in the morning. <laughs> right. And so um, when I came back from that trip, uh, my friend Osha, who is an exquisite didgeridoo player, she had contacted me and said, you know, I have this strong sense that we should do something together. And so we we came together and I had this funky Indian harmonium that was really, um, had a very strange tuning and her didgeridoo was exactly of the right tuning. Ah, that's great. Serendipity. Yeah. Uh, So so live music is now, I I mean, I I, experiencing it here, the live music adds a kind of a kind of depth and um, presence. Yes. Um, what is the goal? I mean, you know, I listen to you. I listen to the CD. You talk a lot about the aliveness. What is the goal of Quantum Light Breath? What, what can we say about that? To come into complete, utter, unadulterated presence. Despite the body being really enlivened through increased breath, Despite whatever arises, um, to keep bringing your attention into what actually is present, which means the movie of the thoughts and identifications keeps coming in and keeps grabbing the attention because we're habituated. Mm. And um, so the guidance is very strongly bringing people's attention back into the actual sensation of embodiment. A sensation and, um, of embodiment. Yeah, so that attention comes into what actually is present rather than the interpretation of what is present by the mind or the other you know, daydream that the mind comes up with. Right, right. You talk about, at the, at the very end, uh, and this is, this is not really a spoiler alert, folks, but uh, at the end of the meditation, you you invite the audience to bear witness to that which is experiencing. Yeah, to that which is witnessing, yeah. Yeah, uh, tell us about that. So, um, when we're focused on the breath, or we're focused on the uh, body, on the sensations, there is a certain direction. Can you sense it, even as I'm speaking of it? So you're, you're, you're aware of seeing, you're aware of the objects you're perceiving, you, or you might bring your attention and awareness to listening, and you are becoming aware of what is being spoken. You might even become aware of how that's being translated into meaning in your mind. Right. Or you might be aware of the chair you're sitting on and the contact you have to the cushion on the chair or the wood on the chair. And so attention has this direction. Where is it coming from? Mm. You know, and to, to, uh, to, it's almost like looking into a mirror where attention 
comes back to where it originates from. The experience, if you just, like, rather than even thinking about it right now, if, if you and, and the listeners, if you just allow everything to fall away for a moment, and just keep your ears open, and keep your hearing open, and then just recognize that there is someone listening. It, it appears like someone is listening. And then just soften that assumption that it's someone and let awareness come back to itself and notice what happens. Notice what is listening. Without finding explanations, without giving a description to this experience of just being openness itself. And even as I'm saying that, it's already diminishing because I'm giving it meaning. But stay with this raw, intimate sense. And this becomes the resource. And so we start to witness as this. So this has a this has a a kind of Zen flavor to me. Uh-huh. Uh and of course, Zen is this this really challenging thing to describe, <laughs> right? And if you ask somebody who practices Zen, they'll tell you they it's not describable. Uh, so, but this is an experience that that is cultivated. And do you find that uh, those who participate in quantum light breath do they reach this place of attentiveness? coming back to itself and, and do they come to some how does that shift them momentary insight esoteric mm-hmm. and, and you call it an experience and I want to I want to just because the mind is very tricky so I've become really particular about I like using that words. <laughs> that's good and and I, I almost like for a while I was like the word experience is really not pointing to what this moment is when when you recognize yourself as aliveness itself, when when you recognize yourself as the spaciousness that is witnessing, when you recognize yourself as life itself, it's not a small thing. It's a, and so it like experiences when you're through your through your senses. This is not really through your senses. This is this is beyond. This is this is an experience of that which is experiencing through the senses. So I came up with the word "imperience" instead of "experience." Oh, I like that <laughs> because this is this is where attention comes back to itself. So it's and and my 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 imperience of it <laughs> was this this ephemerality, this this more than permeability. It was a a kind of dissolution of of identity mm-hmm. right uh, almost a dissolution of of ego into a benign presence yeah where there was no um there, there was no no need to identify because life doesn't need that yeah or something it, it, it actually is fine with it it will begin to identify again, and yet the spontaneity that is available from this place of openness is it, it, this spontaneity isn't available when we are deeply 
identified with some something solid, some idea, or some egoic some, some egoic, construct, yeah, right? And and then life can start to move a bit more freely from an authentic response that is coming from the moment and not from some idea of who I am or what life is or should be. And so, how long is it? How many times you got to do okay, this okay. first? Time? I, you <laughs> so know, you're really going to let go of this thing. Some people have one experience and they stay awake. That's rare. Yeah. You know, for me, it wasn't like that. I, um, I've had enlightenment experiences since 1975 when I went to India. I drove from Germany to India, and my my first big opening was through drugs, LSD, and mm. go on a, at a beach party, mm. and um, but. The the insight that came that was true at that that one night was that I'm on a drug and this doesn't count. What I'm recognizing is reality, and yet this is not a realized uh, state, or this has not really. Uh, it's a tourist it, visa, it, right? It's a tourist, <laughs> right? Right. And I got kicked out of paradise in the morning, you know, and I right, had to. Right, right. So I I gave all my belongings away and I said, okay, you know, I trust existence. I, I'm going to be on this path. I had these ideas that I needed to fast and learn to meditate, and I went up to the Himalayas. I was 18 years old, mm. 19. Yeah. I was 19 at that point. And um, so many experiences came and many moments of the curtains being drawn and and reality, you know, looking reality in the face. But it didn't become a permanent um, state or... It, there was always a lot of seeking around it. After one year of doing this on my own without a teacher, I didn't want a teacher at first. Right. I met the founder of the Hare Krishna movement, and I was deeply attracted to the chanting. I was deeply attracted to the meditation. I was uh, deeply attracted to studying the Vedas. I had been in India for a year on my own, and um, and I was deeply attracted to the food. <laughs> the food, <laughs> really? Um, yeah, they have great food at the Christian temple. <laughs> and, uh, and I was I was 19, it was towards the end of my 19th year, and um, so I became a, I joined the Hare Krishna movement. He, the founder, was around for one more year. His name was Prabhupada. And um, that became my life. And so within the Krishna movement, I lived in Asia for three more years. Then came to the U.S. and um, lived in different communities within the Hare Krishna movement, and uh, it never arrived in a way. Realization never arrived in a way where there was a clear scene that didn't become tainted by projections and by identifications. Egoic identification would always come back in, and then at one point um, through some circumstances I was in, um, my heart opened at the end of 15 years of practicing bhakti yoga. And it stayed open for two months. I was just completely blown open. And um, in those two months, my life totally turned upside down. I got divorced, um, moved away from the Hare Krishna movement, came to Harbin. Uh, so many things happened. And um, I didn't even notice how the how the ego started building again. It built itself a new identity, you know, around mm, yeah. being a teacher or, you know, being a healer. Or, and uh, the quantum light breath was always um, an easy access point for me. 
But my teacher Jeru, he he pointed to the fact that we're still using it a little bit like a drug. I was so you okay. Know? All right, so let let's take a short break, and when we come back, I want to talk more about uh, the the facilitated experience mm-hmm. uh, and what what comes from it, and what what maybe some of the stories that yes, you've yeah. had over the last well, almost twenty years of, yeah. of doing over twenty two yeah, yeah twenty two years of doing it. So uh, we'll take a short break, and we'll be right, okay. right back. A personal tarot reading can offer you insight, information, enlightenment, and empowerment along your life's path. Hi-C is a professional tarot conversationalist and ritualist with over 10 years' experience. He's available for readings in a variety of formats, including parties and events. To schedule your personal tarot reading, contact Hi-C at tarotbyhi-c.net or email him at hic at fireflywillows.com. Welcome back. This is Convergence, and I'm your host, John Carousella. And in continuing conversation with Richard Bach, who leads Quantum Light Breath Meditations at Harbin Hot Springs in Lake County, California. Richard, before the break, we were talking about your uh, experience uh, exiting the Hare Krishna movement and coming to Harbin and the, the and the ego. Uh, but there must have been something, something in, in some seminal event that kicked you into this path of of the Krishna movement like what was what was what happened you were probably just a, a regular guy at one point well I you know I was a, a, a hippie teenager um, living in and out of communes in Germany and left home when I was about 17 um, 16 17 uh, and um, a total atheist yeah uh, no spirituality um, and when I was 18, I lived in a van, a VW van. I had a 1956 VW van. I lived in it. And within one week, like, everything caved in on me. I, I got my draft papers, and um, I had a pending court case. I had a, a, a date was sent to me for a court case for the possession of hashish, and uh, my girlfriend started shooting heroin again. My job changed. Uh, my technical inspection for the for my van was up, and there was no way that it would have passed. And it all just happened at once. And this Pakistani man walks into a cafe. I was sitting there at a the table, and I didn't know what depression was, but that day I was depressed. <laughs> and he looks at me and says, "Hey, I heard you have a VW van for sale." And I said, "No, I, you know, live in my van." And he says, "Well, I'm a I'm an artist and a traveling salesman, and I support myself through my art. And this time I'm traveling with my wife and my son." and we want to travel to the rest of Europe and then go back down to Pakistan. Would you be interested in, um, you know, driving us in your van and we'll finance the whole trip? And I was like, when are we leaving? <laughs> and so, and that was, so that was a spontaneous yeah, appearance. So within three days, we left and we went all the way from Germany up to Holland and through Belgium and France, Switzerland, Austria, all the way through uh, part of the Soviet Union there, Romania. Oh, and, my goodness. Uh, through Turkey. Turkey was beautiful. The, my, the highlight of the trip, and then after Turkey, you know, through Iran, there, there was the land route. In those days, you could go to Istanbul and catch a bus to, to New Delhi. Wow. And it's like what we have here in the U.S., a green tortoise. Yeah. It's yeah, a little yeah. bit like right, that. Right, right. I think they were called Yellow Sunshine Line. I forgot what the line was called. But anyway, there was regular buses going between Istanbul and New Delhi. Oh, and you know, with mattresses and hookahs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that was 1975, 
And so I drove them all the way to Pakistan. I eventually sold my van there in Pakistan. The highlight of that trip was Afghanistan for me. Really? Afghanistan was so incredibly beautiful. The people were totally sincere in their hospitality. They opened their homes. They fed us. They were so giving. The food was amazing. The fruits there. just There was quite an abundance there. Mm-hmm. And I just loved the people. They were amazing people. And um, that was before the Russians. Oh, came yeah. And, yeah. <clears throat> what an amazing, what yeah. an amazing time to so be I traveled by van and then went to India and ended up in Goa mm-hmm. with a whole bunch of hippies. Mm-hmm. 1975, uh, I remember New Year's big party, and then uh, right around New Year's, at one of the full moon parties, I I took some acid, and it, I I had some major openings on acid in Germany already, but I was even younger. And um, I didn't know, like I couldn't really digest those experiences, but what happened in Goa, it all came together. Mm. And the unity of everything just revealed itself. And it's like, okay, I need to find this completely sober. So right. I made this agreement with myself to get totally sober. and to. I thought I had to get sober by even fasting. I thought I had to fast for 30 days to become enlightened. So I had all these ideas. Yeah. That, yeah. You know, Did the fasting help? Them. I never fasted for 30 days. <laughs> uh, I, I was looking for a cave. I, I Basically, I wandered India without any belongings. I didn't have a backpack. I didn't have any belongings. I gave my money away. And so for almost a year, I lived there without any belongings. Wow. And I ended up with two pieces of cloth, my passport, a notebook, a little diary, and a pen. That's it. Wow. No other possessions. And it was beautiful, you know, that... In India, people respected when they saw that I didn't have any belongings. They knew that I was on a, on a quest, on a quest for you know for self-realization, and they respect that. And I was afraid to go back to to Germany. I wasn't afraid to live in India. India was a shelter for me, wow. for my newfound you know opening for my newfound faith in a way, in existence, in God, in, right. in whatever we call it. And um, and I didn't want a teacher. I was very proud, you know, 19 year old teenager. So. Mm-hmm. And um, whenever I, someone would ask me if I had it, who my teacher was, I would just proudly proclaim that I'm finding enlightenment on my own. Uh, and and then, it's, okay, so was that a. Was that folly? No, it was an important part of my path then. And it was funny because. Uh, in Goa, there was a lot of sannyasins, Osho sannyasins. Somebody handed me a German translation of one of his books. It was called The Way of the White Cloud. And I got to maybe the third or fourth sentence in the book, within the first or second paragraph. He says that he attained enlightenment on his own without a teacher, without a guru. And so I closed the book and I said, oh, great, you know. <laughs> it can be done. Yeah. <laughs> so, but, but it was done out of a naive kind of um, youthful exuberance. And it was important because I really needed to exhaust myself. Ah, yeah. Okay. And um, <clears throat> then being in the Himalayas, I, you know, went all the way up into Ladakh. Uh, it, it was the first year that Ladakh was open to tourism. And uh, in the summer of '75. And um, it was a big journey. It was. Um, there was a, a bit of suffering also, in yeah, a way, of yeah. um, you know, 
so there were some scary moments where I almost died, and uh, and those were all different wake up calls to um, to wake me up from the idealism that I had. I, I've been very much an idealist in my life, and um, so I came to recognize I'm not ready to die. <laughs> I want to live. Right. Came to recognize at a certain point that I wasn't really making any progress after one year. And when I, um, after Ladakh, I went back uh, uh, out of the Himalayas and um, ended up hiking along the Ganges. And at a certain point, um, I mean, there was there was moments that were completely blissed out, you know, like no belongings, nowhere to go, no one to answer to, barefoot in the sand on the Ganges and chanting, you know, and walking and arms up in the air and being happy to be alive and period. Yeah. And that was there. And at the same time, there was still also, um, I struggled with not smoking hashish. You know, whenever Babaji's would sit around and pass a chillum, I would right. smoke and then ha- have this internal struggle with myself. Right. And, um, and then someone invited me to come to Mathura and Vrindavan. And in Vrindavan, then I met um, the founder of the Krishna movement and when he when he gazed at me he looked at me for a little while um, everything fell away I I, for the first time became completely honest with myself internally and admitted to myself that I actually needed help ah right and uh, and so I, I stayed in the temple and um, it became a 15 year Unwinding, I was celibate at first. I was celibate for seven years, and then uh, became a householder. And then, towards the end of that time in the Krishna movement, um, I had to leave my family. I had to leave everything behind. I I didn't fit in anymore. Mm-hmm. When there was an awakening yeah. that happened, and it didn't fit into the confines of the Krishna philosophy. Can you can you sketch what that awakening was? These are difficult things to put into words, I know. I came into my humanness for the first time in a way of simply admitting that this is why I'm here, that it was a soul call to incarnate. And rather than transcending through the spiritual quest, to come into my humanness. Yes, right. It's it's not to to escape the humanness, the human condition through spiritual quest, but to... The reverse Embody direction. It. The reverse direction. Yeah. 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 And uh, the whole aspect of human love. I fell in love with this young woman, and um, it opened my 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 spiritual uh, practice. That chanting, you know, chanting was always ecstatic. But when my heart opened, I couldn't um, chant for more than um, a minute without bawling my eyes out. I was just. Oh. I fell in love with everything. I began to see God in the beings around me mm-hmm. and began to see God in everything as everything. And then the, the 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 next step would have been to really recognize myself as that, but that did not take place yet. Mm-hmm. Still, there's right. a lot more in the way. Okay. So, so I want to fast forward then to um, to your current work and quantum light breath as as a technique uh, and um, you mentioned before the break that it was 
like a still that it still seems to you that it might be a little bit of a crutch. Yes, it is a crutch. So let's it is, talk it is about an that. Extraordinary I mean. circumstance that is created. Yeah. Um, like a satsang or or a retreat, which is important. But you know, even satsang. Uh, about eight years or so after coming to Harbin, I um, I met Adi Ashanti here. He became my teacher, and um, after a few years of uh, going to retreats and satsang, I realized I was using it as a drug. Hmm. And Adia said, "Then you know, don't come here anymore. You'd like wake up at home, <laughs> you know, <laughs> right, right, and basically send me home." And uh, so, so, so this okay. We live in a culture, and, and in particular, you know, listeners in our audience are we're seeking, right? And we're and we're using, looking for techniques that help us to open and and to awaken. And you know, I don't want to give the impression that there's something. That there's something well, well, wrong let, with that. Let, right? let me just address that. You know, when seeking is happening, you know, and then you hear that someone stopped their seeking and that's how they woke up, and then you try to stop seeking, you're already interfering with something totally natural that's uh-huh. going right. on. Okay. When seeking is happening, to just be completely, utterly honest. You know, I'm seeking. I'm seeking to ex- to escape the state that I'm in. I'm seeking to find some permanent enlightenment, uh, to find some uh, abiding realization. And there's nothing wrong with that. Right. And at the same time, there comes a point when we let go of that too. It, it brings us, to, the seeking brings us to the door, but then in order to enter, the seeking needs, we need to soften there. We need to soften and, and, and let it fall by the wayside. It's not even so much as stopping. It's just it's done its job and it's done its it job. Feels, it yeah. feels to me like it's a a relinquishing, uh-huh. a shedding, uh, a, a a divesting, like literally a take, taking off of a robe in some way. Yeah, or, you know, when you, if, if you're not like in, in a food addiction and you're eating and, and, and when you fall, you fall. It's like it's that eating has done its job. Right, you know? it, right, and then, right. And then you get up and you move about. And, and it's like that with seeking. That's how I see it. At least it has been like that for me. Mm-hmm. And the whole uh, attempt to attain a permanent abiding state of realization in the last few months, it's um, whenever I find myself in that searching or in that hoping, in that waiting, in that there is a little chuckle, an inner chuckle, and it falls, it falls away. And then awakeness is just so ordinary. It's not the big da da satori, right? Right. Can we can we say that do do that that awakeness is very ordinary? Very or but in, not in the beginning. In the beginning, it is a big deal. You know, the first time um, for a lot of us, the first time reality opens, and I see that I'm not these things that I believed myself to be. That is very disturbing to the ego, but it's also it's a big ta-da because it's exhilarating in some ways. Yeah. yeah, and then if you try to go back to having these taras, you're you're back in ego, looking for right, an experience. Right. And you know, you you if, if we come from this like pressure cooker of identification and the suffering of human life, 
And we come out of this pressure cooker and the steam escapes and so there's this big, you know. And so don't look for the, that's all side effects. That's the side effect <laughs> of having lived a totally identified life. Right, right. And it's not about the side effect. It's, it's, there is a, an ordinariness. Yeah. That starts to arise. And it feels, it, you know, for me, I, I, it's as simple as, as the plants in the garden. Do you know, uh, yeah. like my my understanding and experience of reality is the is the appropriately sized ego of the plants in my vegetable garden. Uh huh. Uh huh. You know, they're just they're just doing their thing, and they, and they have an ego, but it's not it's not attached to anything other than being a tomato plant. Yeah. Right, and enjoying the the sunshine and sucking up the water, and you know, that feels like where you want to be. <laughs> it's where I want to be anyway. <laughs> yeah, so, so ego then isn't as solidified anymore. Like, and so what's happening for me now? It is more in a fluid state, where identification comes and goes more effortlessly. Mm. Mm-hmm. And meditation isn't necessarily on a cushion. Even though that you know, I I still sit right. from time right. to time. Right. But uh, just walking home, or in the middle of my work, um, or having dinner, or even here, you know, there's moments where it's just like it's, it's lucid. You slip. And, you uh-huh. slip. I like. Uh-huh. I feel like I drop the rope. Uh-huh. You know, uh-huh. and it's, it's like um, different. Yeah. And then something happens, and so I find the rope back on me again. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So um, the. I I want to encourage listeners to uh, explore quantum light breath meditation because it was really um, powerful for me. And I've been working a lot on exploring the breath. And and, and when I first heard the CD, you used language uh, that was was very resonant and consonant with what I had been sort of exploring myself. The idea that we're not paying attention to the breath in the in the analytical, intellectual, cognitive way. We're seeking to participate in, right. a, in a feeling Participating way. in the breath, right. And so tell us about that, because I think this is so, a, a useful. So the reason why I'm still offering quantum light breath sessions, um, I do it on the second weekend of the month at Harbin. Um, when, when, when there is a deep identification, there's a lot of fear involved in identification. Most of the time, identification happens actually around fear. Oh. There's like a contraction. And uh, it shows up in the body as um, a restricted flow or as an impaired flow of energy. Simply just finding access through the breath to bring attention to the free flow to the potential free flow that is in the body of the breath enlivens the body. In that enlivenment, whatever issues are there, however we do identify, whatever we believe about life, that can come to the surface. And the focus in quantum light breath is to not deal with those things for a while, to just allow them, Hmm. to give permission, fear to come, anger to come, disappointment, whatever feeling states are there, memories, an old memory, some trauma, some drama from yesterday, from 
five years ago, whatever, it is all allowed without dealing with it. We're dealing with the breath. We're bringing attention back into accessing more of our body and breathing all the way from the perineum, all the way from the tailbone, up into the chest and shoulders, and maybe even further up into the crown. And um, when we when we withdraw attention from from fixing the stories that come up or from attending to the emotions, even though you're allowing them, they they might even take over for moments. A a recognition can take place that I am not these emotions, I am not my sensations, I am not my thoughts, and yet here I am, I am the aliveness that animates all of this. And because we are breathing more deeply and fully, it is all amped up, it is all a bit louder, and so it's taken out of the ordinary. So the aliveness becomes louder than the story, right? Is that? Yeah, yeah. Well, the aliveness also makes the story louder. You know, and you'll see uh, yeah. like some okay. people, they yeah. all of a sudden they start crying, they start laughing, and they're uncontrollable. And, um, but if the focus keeps coming back to what is, to what is totally present, there is a cleansing that happens. There's a mm. purification that mm-hmm. happens yeah. that allows us then to see more clearly. I think yeah. that's, that's, that is an important point that I want to emphasize is that Somehow in this process of of breathing, of inspiring oneself, you know, this this drawing in of breath, we are we have the opportunity to effervesce away some uh, some some detritus, some stuff stuff uh-huh. that that um, and you talked about it as as restricted or constricted flow that's attached to fear that's attached to ego mm-hmm. and the how is it how do we know how it is that breathing and in particular breathing deeply does this effervescing performs this function of of well i'm going to i'm going to try to make it really simple it's just um the level of aliveness in your body is primarily determined by how you breathe. And when you see people that have been deeply programmed through childhood that it's not okay to be big and, and, and large, they have to be small, the way they accomplish this is by shutting down their breathing unconsciously. Uh-huh. Yeah. And so we go in the opposite direction. Okay, we open the breath. And then all of a sudden, you know, someone who has not felt safe being, uh, you know, big and exuberant, all of a sudden, the exuberance just comes out because there's so much energy and wants to burst out. And all of a sudden, they find themselves like making a big sound. Mm. And they notice that it affected everybody in the room. And then to be okay with that. Mm. And, you know, and to just to to learn that it's okay to feel fully alive. Yeah. 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 And to come out of the, of this, um, created image of you know I have to be small and not seen and not heard or any any egoic or attachment any, yeah, right right uh, so it, one of the things because we're talking about inspiration a lot but you know big focus for me in quantum method has become the exhale <laughs> yeah I actually and, yeah, I was know, curious for about a that long too. time in the beginning um, when when Jeru was around and also in in my own work 
people would get tetany, you know, the, where the fingers lock up and they're all tingly and the, the, the lips might not want to move again. And I found that if we really free the exhale, these things don't actually happen anymore. Huh. That the energy can just freely flow. Uh, oftentimes these side effects, they happen when there's... Um, some kind of a, a belief, you know, some kind of a maybe a strong feeling moving through, and there is an editing that happens. Mm. This is one way of shutting down through the technique. But I find that if people just just let the exhale let mm. it fall out, yeah. that there is a psychological release that comes along with that. It's almost like the physical release leads the mental and psychological release. And a letting go can happen more deeply. Yeah, the exhale as you as you um, guide us to is is like um, a surrendering sigh. A surrendering sigh, beautiful. Right, that, and, that, and it just yeah. it's like a it's like a dumping. Absolutely, right? yeah. just like dumping yeah. your breath out yeah. in in, a, just, in an unforced way. Yes. Um, and I asked you about that. Like, do you do you want to expel all the way out? Because to expel all the way out requires an effort. And that's okay to do. That's not wrong. But um, I I like the least effort. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That it's a relaxed effort and a relaxed yeah. drinking in of the inhale, really filling, and the exhale is again this surrender. Yeah. And if you there's it's like a feeling you want to expel something and you know go all the way to the bottom of the exhale and then mm -hmm. let that go, yeah. and the inhale comes rushing in. Hmm. It's great. Okay, so is there is there a you? I imagine over twenty two years you've had some interesting feedback from folks who have participated. Uh -huh. You have a story or two that you want to share? Um, yeah, just and this one man. He he came and and he would come to this place where he just he believed that. If I open to the sadness that's coming on, I will be depressed for the next five or ten years. Mm -hmm. And so he, Jeru was still around, and Jeru had come to Harbin, and so I, I, I invited this man. I said, "Come up, and do it with my teacher." And and so he sat in front of Jeru, and he told Jeru this story. And Jeru said, "Well, we're going to do quantum light bath tonight, and um, I, 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 I strongly believe that you will not fall into a depression. Just you know, allow it." And somehow Jiru was older and, you know, deeply experienced. He had trust in Jiru more mm -hmm. than he did with me. And, and he allowed this immense sadness to move through him. And uh, it took all of maybe 30 seconds of just... In, to the, and we could feel it. The whole room felt this sadness that was moving through one being. And uh, his father died when he was three years old. He never allowed himself. He had to be, you know, he was told you have to be strong boy. Right, and, right, know, right. and he never felt the loss of his father. In that moment of that immense feeling, you know, totally taking over, he actually felt the presence of his father. And for the first time, he felt close to his father again. So there was like a resolution happening that happened so effortlessly. I met him over the years. And you know there was more to come. There was more to uh, to the whole story of um, losing his father, but that broke open for him. If if you shut down in one emotion, you shut them all down. 
Yeah. You can't. You can't selectively, you can't shut selectively down the numb. Anymore. You can't. Yeah. yeah that's and, true. And, you know, and, and so you shut down the 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 joy. You shut down. You shut shut all of it down. And um, that happens a lot in quantum light path, where where people come and um, and there's some sense of uh, um, fear of of being taken over by the emotions or by old memories. Mm-hmm. And uh, and the guidance helps to stay focused. In what's present, right? Yeah, that's great. And then eventually, my hope is that eventually people, you know, become self-guided, where um, in daily life, you know, something comes, there's a reaction happening, you you're aware that you know, oh, here's this reaction, I'm identified, I'm, I'm feeling threatened, but all she's saying is, you know, why did you blah blah blah? And, <laughs> right, right. And, and all of a sudden, it's this seeing through the through the curtain base, is seeing through the facade into a more primal place that begins to recognize itself and that begins to act and speak and move with an authenticity, with a spontaneity. Yeah. Mm. This is really powerful work and I think um, I think we're really blessed to have this kind of work available for us, and uh, Harbin, of course, is a beautiful place. Um, so thank you for doing this work. Um, we're about out of time. Is there anything you want to share with our listeners for um, final thoughts? You know, on one hand, we want to we want to take spiritual practice seriously, and on the other hand, I want to say, lighten up. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and and just uh, don't t- don't take yourself too seriously, and yet. Be honestly involved with where you want to get to. Be honestly involved with with revealing so that there isn't an outer life and an inner life. Have a few people in your life that you can be completely transparent with. And then in the mirror of other, you start to realize, like, wow, I, the way I am and what I am is actually okay. Mm-hmm. Life wants to be here as this. Right. And then get on with it. And then get on with it. <laughs> right. That's great. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Uh, and if folks want to get to know you and your work a little bit better, how do we direct them? So uh, I'm, I live at Harbin Hot Springs, and I, I sometimes travel. Uh, I have a website. Uh, it's truecontact.com, true-contact.com. Okay. And uh, you can reach me through that website. There's also another website, quantumlightbreath.com, um, that website is still up but we're we're doing some mm. we, we need to do some repair it, it's old or okay, sure is right. not so happy with it <laughs> so we're going to change it a little bit all right yeah. and you're you're here at harbin hot springs typically the second weekend of the month is that right i yeah i live here i do aquatic body work i'm uh, available for individual sessions so people have to just ask for me mm-hmm. i don't sign up on shifts but i'm uh, uh, available on special requests right and then also through the website right I just also started offering some Skype sessions um, for people that are not coming to Harbin because they live elsewhere right. and um, the spiritual counseling that works really well. Great. Yeah, I was I was resistant at first, but then some people said, "Look, this would really help me," and so yeah, it's actually yeah. working. Yeah. That's great. All right, Richard, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, I look forward to experiencing more of your work, and I, I wish you the very best. It was a great pleasure to be here with you. Thank, thank you. you. And we'll be right back. Hi, I'm John Carasella, your host for Convergence on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. 
Many of you may have heard of the devastating wildfires crossing California at this time. One place that's been profoundly affected is Harbin Hot Springs. For the last 40 years, Harbin Hot Springs has been a place of respite and retrieve for many across the country and around the world. But it holds a special place in the hearts of Northern Californians because it's so close, so accessible, and so affordable. Sadly, all the facilities at Harbin Hot Springs burned to the ground recently in the Great Valley Fire that's been ravaging Lake County and its surroundings. Many of the staff at Harbin also lived on the grounds. They've lost their homes as well as their livelihood. Harbin is in urgent need of donations. So if you feel moved, visit harbin.org to learn how you can help. That's H-A-R-B-I-N dot O-R-G. H-A-R-B-I-N dot O-R-G. Thanks for your care and your consideration. Well, that's our show. I hope you enjoyed it. I'm just back from some extended travels, both from what turned out to be temporary duty in Provo, Utah, and an amazing trip to northern India. I'm still a bit jet-lagged and dislocated from all that travel, but I promise next month to share some of the many gifts I received on that journey. Enjoy the equinox. As always, get outside and be with the creation. I know you'll be better for it. Until next time. Thank you for joining us. This program was brought to you by Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. We hope you enjoyed the show. Please join us next time on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E for our live on-air call-in show, Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m.